0: If you will, turn with me to Romans 1 16. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 16, and we're going to read through the chapter. My sermon title may seem a little misleading once I, start, once I get going in the sermon. I called it the Supreme Court, God's Wrath, and the Response of Christ's Church, and then I'm just preaching out of Romans 1. So, did you bait and switch us? I didn't, but you may feel that way in a little bit. We'll see. All right. Look at Romans 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, we ask that your spirit would be greatly at work in our own hearts and minds, turning on the lights so that in our dark minds we can see the truth of your word so that we love it, that you would bring repentance to our own hearts, joy in your Son to us, that we would know what the ultimate problem of mankind really is, And what the ultimate solution to that problem is. And that we would, in a greater way, trust in your son together and rejoice in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wrestled wrestled with where to start a sermon like this. I didn't wrestle with this sermon because I was unfamiliar with the text that I wanted to go teach. I've preached through the book of Romans. I spent four years in it. I wrestled with it, just how do I start? Because here's the thing, I I don't desire to speak about homosexuality. I'm really not interested in speaking about that topic. I certainly don't want to bash those who struggle with the sin of homosexuality. Uh, People in our own congregation do struggle with that sin and have struggled with that sin. And we love them and we want to be of service to them, not bash them. Just like I don't want to bash any sinner who struggles with any sin. You see, in one sense, homosexuality is a sexual sin that is no different than other sexual sins. All sexual sins deserve the just condemnation of God. But in another sense, homosexuality is a different sexual sin in that its very act contradicts the complementarity of God's creation, overturning God's creation as male and female. And while homosexuality homosexuality is not something Christians are anxious to discuss, we're not anxious to discuss this, but our current cultural and legal moment requires us to do so. On Friday, in an act of judicial tyranny, five unelected and unaccountable justices thrust upon our nation a new legal definition of marriage. I I know I used the word tyranny. Did he just use that word in a sermon? Yes, I did. Judicial tyranny. It's like we have a justiciarchy now. That's a word I just made up. Rule by judges. We swapped out a king in England for five people in black robes. But, don't, don't get too excited yet. <laughs> I know I use the word tyranny, but the court has been tyrannical before. Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, Roe versus Wade. This is not new. Please understand the government has never privileged marriage because it wanted to privilege love between two consenting adults. You know, the government is not in love with the idea of romance. The state's privileged marriage, the state's privileged marriage, because the people believed that the lifetime covenantal bond of a biological man and a biological woman was the only context in which we could produce and raise healthy children. This millennia-old cultural and religious understanding and this hundreds-of-year-old legal understanding was overthrown on Friday. And I'm, I'm left with the question as to what address, to address among the many things which can be addressed. See, I could address the fact That Jesus said, what God has established, let no man tear asunder, yet five justices had the hubris and blatant arrogance to tear it asunder on Friday. Thus these justices violate both the biblical decree of God and the proper founding principle of our country that rights are given by God and not by government. I could address the fact that we need to understand that the destruction of marriage did not, I want you to hear this, the destruction of marriage did not begin with the homosexual rights movement, but with a sexual revolution and a divorce culture which turned marriage into a romantic relationship which existed to bear the weight of my demands for self-fulfillment and individual expression, an idolatrous weight that marriage could never bear. I could address the fact that the church has so idolized marriage. The church has so idolized marriage and family as the ultimate end for every member of our body that we have sent a message that singleness and sexual abstinence is a less complete and fulfilling life and is to be abhorred at all costs. And now what we are doing is drinking the foul cocktail that we helped create. I could address the fact that the church has failed to listen well to homosexuals because we have. ...who are suffering from a socially constructed identity crisis. One that we helped construct. And who feel like they are finally not, finally not. You saw them celebrating. Why? Because I want you to empathize with something. They felt like they are finally not a pariah in society... ...because they can now be called husband or wife. Because we held up before them, church... ...that that was the ultimate end of mankind... And told them they couldn't participate in it. And so they had an identity crisis that we helped create. Your ultimate identity is not husband or wife. Your ultimate identity is is Christ. An identity crisis which we contributed to with our family idolatry and our idolatry of self-fulfillment as we preach a Jesus who's come to make us happy and to give us our best life now. See, I could address the fact that the church in America is now going to feel the reality of being a people in exile. For millennia, in various places on earth, the church has lived at the margin of society. Do you guys know that? And the church has grown and thrived on those margins, but American Christians have long enjoyed the privileges of being in the center of society. This condition and those privileges no longer obtain. Further, with the Supreme Court declaring that homosexual marriage is a fundamental right akin to the right of ethnic minorities, we now have the groundwork necessary to declare that anyone who opposes such a right is a bigot akin to, akin to someone who denies fundamental rights to ethnic minorities. Thus, the Christian church's very gospel witness is now a message of bigotry. And we will, we will begin to feel the legal and social ramifications of that. So I could preach a whole message on how we maintain a faithful witness in the face of coming persecution, because it is now coming. I could do a series on how we ought to be ready to not only face financial and legal legal penalties for our faith, but how we face social rejection. You see, our names are going to be reviled. They already are being reviled. They're going to be falsely spoken evil against, and we need to repent of the panting after the approval of men and gird up our loins so we can bless those who revile us and persecute us, so we can love and do good to those who spurn us and commit evil against us. See, I could preach a whole series on how we are commanded to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good, confident that vengeance is the Lord's, and following our Messiah, we should follow our Messiah, who when reviled did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I could address the fact that the church now faces new challenges in understanding what it means to render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. For we need to understand anew how and when we submit to a government which has failed to perform its God-given role to be an instrument of God for righteousness and has become an instrument of unrighteousness. I could address what the Bible says about homosexuality so that we as a church are ready to stand as a faithful witness against those false teachers who will arise and will continue to arise to make the Bible say something else altogether. In fact, I'm giving you a book for that purpose. I hope you will read it because I want you to be aware of something. So-called Christians in love with the approbation of the present world will arise speaking twisted things about the Scripture, and they will not come from without, they will come from within the church. The great threat is not the prospect of watching the numerous Republican politicians who are going to trip over themselves lining up to be in favor of gay marriage now, or who are going to at least minimally say, the issue's over, let's stop talking about it. The great threat is false teachers who will rise from our own number, drawing away disciples after themselves who want to fundamentally redefine God and his word. Those who want to declare that God is love while removing any obligation to ask what John actually means by that when he says that in 1 John And emptying the idea of love of any ethical content and turning love into a mere aesthetic proposition akin to God is joyous approver of whatever makes me happy and self-fulfilled. These false teachers cannot endure the thought of being reviled and pushed to the margins of culture. And with their hands firmly clasped around the idol of man's approval, they will declare to you that we need a moratorium on declaring what the Bible says about homosexuality. We need to be kinder and gentler as a church. And by kinder and gentler, they mean nothing as to what the scripture means by those terms. These teachers will say they're just asking questions we need to wrestle with. You see, are we really sure the Bible says that? I mean, this book is really old. How do you know that that's what it really means? They didn't even know about committed homosexual relationships in the first century when Paul wrote, false, not true. They had them. Plato writes about them even. Hundreds of years before Paul's writing Romans. Church fathers write about them. The first, second, third century. And if you listen closely to these false teachers, you will notice in their questions the deceit of that wicked servant who whispered in Eve's ears, did God Really say. Or I could address the fact that we are seeing to, what we are seeing today is a result of that great cosmic war which was announced in the curse, that the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. And I could point you to the fact that that skull crushing seed of the woman has come and he's defeated that great serpent on the cross and he's risen from the dead and he is presently at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning from whence he sends the spirit and he will return to put all his enemies under his feet. And then I could point you to where Paul says in Romans 16 that soon this God of peace will crush Satan under our feet as well. These are just some of the tensions and issues that confront us. Not even all of them. But while government institutionalization of homosexual marriage is new, nothing else I have mentioned here is new. So with the time I have this morning, I want to look at two questions. So say, that was all introduction. Yes. <laughs> I haven't even looked at the text yet. I want to look at two questions. One, how did we get here? And two, How does Christ's church respond? By the question I'm asking, I mean something far deeper than how did America arrive at this particular cultural moment? That's a secondary question, really answered by the more important question how did mankind get into a situation in which we are openly endorsing and institutionalizing sin? Further, by the question, what is the church's response, I mean something far more central and powerful than how do we gird up our loins to win the culture war in America? For that too is a secondary question, answered by the more important question, which is how is the greater cosmic cultural war between Satan and God's people won? So let's look at the first question, how did we get here? How do we get here? Look with me at Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, we got here, Paul says, first because in our sin... In our ungodliness, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? To suppress the truth is um, a way of saying that we stood over the truth as if we were above it and we pressed it down. We told it to be quiet. We became its judge. We began to examine the scriptures rather than realizing they examine us. Rather than understanding that we're under the, rule, under the rule of God, we have put ourselves above the rule of God. We judge him. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we've believed the great lie that we can be like God, and we have replaced him in our minds and hearts with our own foolish desires and ideas. But the question is, when Paul says this, that men, that men have suppress the truth and unrighteousness, all of them, and he means mankind in the generic sense, the question is, how is that a fair charge? See, how can Paul say that all mankind has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness? What about the heathen who's never heard of the Bible? How can he say they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness? Look at 119, verse 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, Paul is saying that God created us and that God creates all things. And all men know that God exists. They all know that he's given us a moral uh, moral commands, because those commands have been written in our hearts. They all know the failure, their failure to worship and obey God is cosmic treason and deserves God's justice. All men everywhere know that. There are no atheists. God does not believe in them. There are only fools who deny what they know to be true. That's it. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But he knows it's true. He's just denying it. That's not a mental problem he has. That's a moral problem he has. All are without excuse. No one on the entire planet will stand before God and say, it's not fair, I didn't know. No, everyone is without excuse. Paul builds on this argument, though, by, of, by about this rejection of God by mentioning three exchanges, and I want you to see those three exchanges. The first exchange that he mentions is in Verse 21 through 23, let's look there. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, here's the first one, exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we exchanged the creator for his creation. We stopped worshiping God and started worshiping what he made. The second exchange comes up in verse 25. Because they exchanged, look what he says verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, we're exchanging, if you will, if you follow Paul's argument, the the creator for the creation. We're exchanging God for idols. Truth for lies. That's what we've done. All of us. Everyone on the earth. There is no noble savage. They don't exist. God has created everyone He's put the imprint of his law on all their hearts, and they openly, willfully reject him. The third exchange. Let's look there. Verse 26. It's actually the second half of verse 26. So go to the end of the first sentence there, and you have this word, for their women. Now notice this. Their women exchanged. It's the third exchange. Their women exchanged natural relations For those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, so the third exchange is exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural sexual relations. And if you're reading this slowly, then this third exchange might kind of take you by surprise. You might wonder, what? Wow, that seems out of place. The first two exchanges are what? Exchanging God for idols, exchanging the creator for creation, exchanging truth for lies. So why is the third exchange here? What does homosexuality have to do with any of this? And this is a clear description of homosexuality. What does it have to do with any of this? Why does Paul put it there? Well, there's one, there's really more than one reason, but, but let me drive at the central reason. I want you to go back to the garden. God created us to be image bearers. What does that mean? That means we reflect the truth about him. You know image bearers. You all own them because you have mirrors. And they bear your image and they reflect the truth about you. Now as you get older, that truth becomes more and more depressing. (laughs) But there it is. Reflect the truth about you. Well, God created us to reflect the truth about him. He created us as image bearers, not just to be in the garden, but he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it so that we were to bear his image, his glory throughout the whole earth, that we would spread his glory from the garden across the earth. And Adam was commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. And for Adam to do so, he needed his sexual complement. The one time in all of Genesis 1 and 2 that God says it is not good in his created order is when he says it is not good that man is alone. And God did not respond to that aloneness of Adam by creating another man. He responded by creating a woman, a wife, Adam's sexual complement. Together, Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth, spreading the glory of God across the earth. They were the pinnacle, if you will, of God's creation. They were the living image bearers of God's glory who would reflect his glory everywhere. And the crowning of the entire creation account of the first two chapters of Genesis comes in Genesis 2.24 when you hear, for the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave To his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Adam and Eve could unite as two parts to a sexual whole, and they could reproduce new image bearers who would spread the glory of God across the earth. Thus, when we exchange the natural, God created, God glorifying complementarity, we've directly rejected God and his created order. Now it's true that in some sense all sexual immorality is a rejection of God's original intent. Polygamy is a rejection of God's original intent. Adultery is a rejection of God's original intent. But homosexuality is a unique kind of affront precisely because it's unnatural. It isn't just a moral sin. It's a sin against nature. In its very act it tells a lie about God and his creation It's unnatural for a man to lie with a man, or a woman to lie with a woman, just like it's unnatural for a man to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, and unnatural to exchange God for idols, and unnatural to exchange truth for lies. So we've gotten here to this moment by our own rejection of God. Do you hear that? How have we gotten here? by our own rejection of God, by our suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness. But I, I need to take this a step further because the Apostle Paul actually takes how we got here one step further. Look back at Romans 1.18. Notice the use of the word, um, for the phrase, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why does Paul say for the wrath of God is revealed. That's in the present tense. In other words, what Paul's saying is, when I'm writing this in the first century to you all, church, the wrath of God is presently, right now, as we speak, being revealed. So why does he say it's being revealed? What does he mean? Let's be clear, this is not talking about the wrath of God that's coming in the future. It's talking about the wrath of God that's presently here. It's not talking about, you know, the fact that there's a flood somewhere and God's mad at them because they're homosexuals. It's not talking anything about that. Paul defines for us what he means by the fact the wrath of God is presently here. Yes, there is a future wrath coming when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And yes, God can exercise his wrath however he feels he wants to exercise it. And we have nothing to say but to shut our mouths. However, what Paul is talking about is that the wrath is presently right now being revealed. So how is it being presently revealed? How is the wrath of God presently being revealed? Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Hear that? He gave them up. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. In verse 24, he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, this honoring of their bodies among themselves. He gave us up to immorality. He turned us over to sin. God's wrath is presently being revealed in that he's turning us over to our own sin. Look at verse 26. God gave them up. How? To dishonorable passions. Now here's going on to homosexuality. Gave us up to homosexuality to the due penalty for our error. Now, my concern at this point is, um, many of you are saying, yeah, go get them. That's right, tell those sinful wretches out there what the score is. And in doing so, you're failing to feel the force of this passage in your own life. L- look at verse 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. What do you give them up to? A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, whether you struggle with homosexual sin or not, you are no less guilty of sin. No less guilty of sin. You may not have joined the Supreme Court on Friday in giving approval to those who commit homosexual sin. You may have been sickened when you saw the White House all in rainbow colors. But you have approved all sorts of sin in your life too. All sorts of it. How many wildly inappropriate movies have you watched? Paid for. You just approved of sin, didn't you? How many times have you sat and participated in gossip and slander? The Greek word for that is diabolical, devil speech. you disapproved just approved of sin. I mean, I could go on, right? You don't only really practice such things. You approve of those who do them. I do the same thing. I'm no less guilty than Barack Obama was when he put a rainbow flag on the White House. No less guilty. I'm a sinner too. I've approved of sin too. I've not only done such things, I've approved of those who practice them. Look at Romans 2 1 through 3. Paul addresses this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now this word judgment is so abused in our culture. Paul is not saying never judge anything because in other places he expressly tells us to judge. What he's talking about is don't self-righteously, hypocritically look down your nose at other people as if they're somehow more guilty of sin than you are. As if they're somehow more inferior before the standard of a holy God than you are. That's what he's talking about. You judge others and you practice the very same things, you hypocrites. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And in case you're you're missing the point, Paul continues to bring increased clarity all the way through chapter 2 into chapter 3, where he finally culminates his argument in chapter 3, verse 9. Look there. What then? Are we Jews, that means the religious types of that day that Paul's reading? Are we religious people any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews, the religious, and Greeks, the non religious, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks through God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now go down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous and forgiven in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, so so here's how we got here. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? All of us. We've all rejected the rule and worship of God. And none of us, no not one, will be able to stand before God and say, look what I did. I am clearly better than that homosexual person. I am clearly better than my spouse. I am clearly better than my sibling. I am clearly better than my parents. I am clearly better than that person at work who irritates the crud out of me. I am clearly better than these people. You won't stand before God and say that. No, what Paul says is, every mouth will be stopped For your neighbor is not the one who sets the bar of holiness. God is. And when you see him, you will have nothing to say. You will have no justifications to give, no case to make. You won't question him at all. Your mouth will be stopped, and you will be as Isaiah, who declares, I am undone. I'm coming unravel. I'm disintegrating in front of the holiness of God. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's all that will happen when you stand before God in and of yourself. So I've given you the bad news. There's the bad news. Five justices in the Supreme Court are not the only ones who are guilty of sin. Our president is not the only one who's guilty of sin. Homosexuals are not the only ones who are guilty of sin. We're all guilty of it. All of our mouths will be stopped when we stand in front of the great judge. All of them. None of us we'll have a word to say in our own defense. So what's the good news? See, I said I had two questions. The first was, how did we get here? The second is, what is our response? So what is the response of Christ's church to all this? What is the good news? Look back at Romans 1.18 again. Say, really, every part of my sermon is just springing off of Romans 1.18. I'm going to go backwards and now forwards. Romans 1.18, you notice the first word in that verse, for. Look, when you see a word like for, you know that grammatically, it is likely pointing back to something that precedes it. The word for is likely giving you a reason for something that preceded it. So how is for being used here? Well, it's pointing to the immediately preceding verse, verse 17, so look there, for in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is it? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is it? Well, it is the gospel. How do I know that? Because the word for in verse 17 is pointing me back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God, the reason we need the righteousness that's only available in the gospel is because the wrath of God is presently being revealed to us. Do you follow Paul's logic? The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that what? That Jesus came and lived the life we failed to live. That he paid for our debt of sin on the cross. That he conquered the grave in his resurrection. That he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he currently rules and reigns. And from where he sent his spirit. It is in that good news, the gospel, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We receive that good news. How can we stand before God righteous? How can we stand before God justified? We receive that good news as a righteousness that is not our own. We do not stand before God on the basis of our own righteousness. We stand before God on the basis of a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. A righteousness that belongs to him. That is why Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is being revealed, because we need a foreign, alien righteousness, because we're presently under the wrath of God in and of ourselves, and by works of the law, no human being can be justified. Paul says this clearly again if you look at Romans 3 and verse 21. After he said, you cannot be justified by works of the law, he says in verse 21, but now, chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been, ma- been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament tells us about this coming righteousness of God. But the law in the Old Testament can't bring you that righteousness it can tell you about it and testify to your need for it, but it can't bring it to you. It's now been made manifest, the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus, Messiah, for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation a wrath bearer, a satisfier of God's justice against us by his blood to be received by faith. You see, the righteousness with which we stand before God is not our own. It's the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. Church, we need to remember that. It's not a righteousness that we earn or merit somehow deserve more than our neighbors it's not a righteousness that we had because we're mentally smarter than our neighbors because we bought an apologetic argument that they fail to understand it is not a righteousness that we receive because of anything in and of us it's by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone paul says this again in romans 10 look there romans 10 And verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, who the them is there is the ethnic Jews. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He wants his ethnic, ethnic Jewish brothers, Paul being an ethnic Jew, to be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, he's saying, these ethnic Jews, who are my brothers according to the flesh, I want them to be saved. They are zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. So therefore, they're what? Damned. What do they not know about? Their need for righteousness, not their own, that comes only in Jesus. How do I know that? Look on. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end, the telos, the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 10 of Romans 10. Or, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, we're not justified before God by our own doing, but freely as a gift of grace so that whoever believes in him will not be, will never be put to shame. Okay, that's the good news, I believe, but a question remains. How does telling you that good news answer our question about what Christ's church does to respond to this culture war that we're embroiled in? They said, how does Christ's church respond? Well, what I told you is good news. I didn't tell you what we do. There's nothing for us to do. Good news is not good advice. Good news, you don't open the newspaper and think you're getting advice, unless you're not very bright. You open the newspaper to find out news. Well, good news is just that. It doesn't tell you anything to do. It tells you what's good that you need to know. So I just did that, but I told you I was going to answer the question, how do we respond as Christ's church? in the midst of this situation? That's advice. How do we respond, right? So let me give you the advice now that you've got the news. Let's walk back into Paul's logic again. Look at Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17. Now notice there again the word for at the beginning of the verse. What's for pointing back to? It's pointing back to the fact that the righteousness we need can be found only in the gospel. Thus why Paul says what he says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed. In the Greek, that's a litotus, which is, which is um, it's, it's a uh, way of saying something very positive in a negative way. I'm not ashamed is a way of saying I'm proud. You guys know that. How do you look? Not bad. That means they look good, right? Not just not bad, they look good. Right? Okay? Well, that's what Paul's doing here. For I am not ashamed. I am proud of the gospel. Why am I proud of the gospel? For it is the power of God. What is the power of God for salvation? The gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In other words, the gospel is what saves, the gospel is what wins the day. Love does win. And his name is Jesus. And he wins by atoning for our sin at the cross, not by approving our sin in a courthouse. The gospel is the power of God to change hearts and minds. Thus, we, like Paul, should not be ashamed but rather proud to proclaim the gospel. Christians, listen, we can talk about winning presidential and congressional and judicial elections all day long, but if we fail to proclaim the gospel, we will still be left with a fallen people who may have better laws but who are still going to hell. You can make people's life as pleasant as you want here on earth. You can give them the ideal America but if you don't give them Jesus when they get to the end of their life they're going to hell. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that we do not need to love our neighbors enough to fight for better laws. We do. We do need to love our neighbors enough to fight for better laws. Just and righteous laws. We need to love our neighbors that way. However, let us never fall prey to the idea that the ultimate enemy is a political one. The ultimate enemy is sin and idolatry and death and hell. The ultimate enemy is Satan. This enemy is only defeated by proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the name of the one whom they've never heard? Or believed, sorry. And how can they believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Church, our primary charge is not to storm the gates of Congress. It's not to storm the gates of the White House. It's not to storm the gates of the Supreme Court to rescue America. Our hope is not in this kingdom, but in the one to come. Our primary charge is to storm the gates of hell and to rescue sinners. And no Supreme Court decision will stop the forward momentum of the gospel for as Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and neither will the Supreme Court. So how do you respond to Friday's decision? Well, in the most important and primary sense, nothing has changed for us. We reply the way the church has always replied to a sinful and fallen world. We preach the gospel We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We rest in Christ who is no less on the throne today than he was on Thursday. We proclaim proclaim Jesus. We love God. We love others. We love even those who hate us and persecute us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that those here who are believers that are your church, that we would remember that ultimately in the truest sense, nothing has changed for us, that Jesus is still on his throne, that the great war is still between him and Satan, that he dealt the victorious blow at the cross and that he will come and finish what he started at his return, and that we as your people would understand that we are citizens first of your kingdom and secondarily of any other that we happen to live in here. That we would live for your kingdom and for your righteousness and that we would desire to see people more than anything else not saved from bad legislation or bad Supreme Court decisions but saved from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Pray that you would do that great work in our church. That we would love our neighbors well enough to fight for just and pray for just and righteous laws. That we would love our neighbors well enough to care for them even when they revile us. And that ultimately, we would love our neighbors enough to tell them about Jesus, their only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.